Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And the New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7. page 1,846 in the Pew Bibles. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Thanks very much for reading, Ellen. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you this morning. Um, If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. It's my privilege and joy to be the lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. And uh, yeah, if I haven't met you already, um, I'll try and run to the back door or the front door, whichever we call it, uh, towards the end of the service. So if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after church today and uh, just a few extra announcements. One is um, Daisy, one of our members of church here, arrived this morning with bucket loads of pasta that she's made. Um, And so if you are hungry after church, there's bucket loads of pasta to eat on behalf of Daisy. I don't know what happened to her. She said to me like, oh yeah, this last night I just got this sort of desire to make pasta. 
I'm like, who has that at 11 o'clock at night? Um, but she did, and so in her kindness she's brought that. So please stick around for lunch, and even if you can't stay for Forge, but do stay for Forge, um, but have some food with us as well. Um, that'd be a great thing to do. Um, just as well, let's let you know, um, we're just running out a new bit of um, City Light Church North Adelaide merchandise around here. So if you noticed, Ellen and myself are wearing the same clothes all the time. Um, <laughs> And so we're just going to, Ellen as well, she, Ellen is part of our staff team um, of two. Um, there's me, lead pastor, Ellen, our um, associate minister for women. And uh, we're just going to get our jumpers embossed with something just to kind of make it official. So if you'd like some, just let us know. Um, that'd be really good. Um, before we open up God's word, as Ellen mentioned, um, this, this part of God's word, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, um, is a, perhaps one of the most challenging passages in all of the Bible, um, particularly the last few verses. And so in order to treat the verses well, and in order to address and recognize the difficulty and discord and dissonance that we might feel with these verses... We are, as Ellen mentioned, going to slow right down through this particular chapter. At North Adelaide, if you've been around for us a little while, you'll know that we kind of tend to, to do larger chunks of uh, or pieces of scripture, um, you know, um, rather than sort of, you know, like really slowing down. Um, for this particular next five weeks, we're going to really slow down through this part of God's word uh, to listen carefully to God's word. Not that we don't do that normally, right? Um, but in a particular way. Um, so we're going to go for five weeks in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're part of our community, you would have heard a, a message, I've got a message from me, which is, I'd love us to do three things to pray through this next five weeks, uh, for me as I teach God's word and for us all as we listen, uh, to attend uh, our church, uh, to come along, uh, to be here as much as humanly possible for all five weeks in person, and thirdly, to invite. Um, this is God's good word. Um, which has a word to say to all of us all the time. And so it's a, like any other week, it's a good week to invite people to church. So my few words there. We are going to turn to each other one more time. I want you to turn to the people around you. And here's the question for today. It's coming from the screen. What's a sign of a healthy church? What's a sign of a healthy church? Turn to the people around you. I'll give you about 57 seconds to turn to the person next to you or behind or before you. What is a sign of a healthy church? Go.
All right. That's enough time. Keep those thoughts in your back of your mind. Um, I'm going to pray in a moment, but uh, we don't normally do this. We don't like to embarrass people publicly at our church, uh, but I will right now uh, just to say two quick things. One is to just congratulate Jesse and Izzy on two years anniversary of being married. Congratulations. And also want to let everyone know to make him feel particularly embarrassed, but it's Carl's birthday today. Um, Carl, Carl, who serves us quietly, diligently, and has done for a long time. So, yeah, happy birthday, brother. Yeah. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, and we pray with thanks for your word, and we pray now, Lord, as we look at your word, as we sit under your word, that, Father, you, by your spirit, through this word, would help us to see Jesus that by your spirit and through this word, you would help us to hear Jesus. And by your spirit and through your word, we pray that we would love Jesus and desire the things that you desire above everything else. Father, help me to speak faithfully and with power and help us, Father, to listen well to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. I suspect that we all have ideas about what makes for a healthy church. What are the signs? What are the signs of good health in a group of Christians? What are the good signs that we're healthy? Sometimes I think we're all too prone to notice the bad signs in a church, but what are the good signs? What is the evidence that there is real spiritual life here? What are the indications, as we looked at last week in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that the truth of the glorious gospel of God is actually having its effects? What are the signs of good health in a fellowship of believers like us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide? Just as important, what are the early signs of ill health? If for one reason or another, a church or a fellowship was ailing under threat of losing its way, possibly falling under unhealthy influences, do you have one piece of advice that you would give? A piece of advice of first importance. I love the way the Bible keeps taking me by surprise when we listen to it carefully. Perhaps I'm just a slow learner, but it does keep doing that for me because God's ways are not our ways usually. Actually, I often feel I haven't really understood a particular part of the Bible until I've seen how surprising it is to me. If I think what it's saying is normal or just what you'd expect, then maybe in some cases I've not quite got it yet. Well, as we continue in Paul's first letter to Timothy, trying to keep in mind what we learned last week in chapter one, I wonder if you can see the puzzling surprise at the beginning of chapter two. I hope you have it open in front of you, and I've got a particular translation on the screen which you can follow along with me. I'm gonna read verses one through seven of chapter two again. This is what Paul says, let me read it again. Therefore, I urge, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and reverence. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come into a knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, a man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of nations in faith and truth. As you hear those words, as we hear those words, I'm not really surprised that Paul urges Christians to pray, even to pray for those in authority. I know he said that elsewhere. I'm not surprised that Paul reminds us of the gospel. He does that often. I'm not surprised that Paul tells us about Jesus. He does that often as well. I'm, not, I'm certainly not surprised that he mentions that he's an apostle. He does that quite often too. I might be a little bit puzzled about the connection between all those things, but what has really struck me as I've thought about these words is a word that's often softened a little bit in our translations, and it stands right at the very beginning of the paragraph. In my translations, in most translations, it's the word then, but it really ought to be translated the word therefore. And the question that came to my mind over the past week, why is this? What follows from what we've heard from 1 Timothy chapter 1? Why? In chapter 1, right, Paul reminded Timothy of the task that he'd given to him. Remember multitasking? To hold on to the truth of the gospel tenaciously whilst also always remembering the mercy of God. And he needs to do that in order to deal with certain people in Ephesus in the first century who were teaching something different to what Paul had been teaching. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 3, these people in Ephesus were not teaching what was sound and healthy teaching in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God which Paul had been entrusted. Were these certain people, these persons, permitted to keep teaching their ideas, those who listened to them and took them seriously, those who were taken in by them would be hurt. Damage would be done to Christian lives. The life of the church there in Ephesus, faith would be shipwrecked. And so at some length, Paul himself, through chapter 1, for the benefit of the believers there in Ephesus, all of them, as much as for Timothy's benefit, underlines Timothy's job is to stop these certain people from teaching these weird ideas. Verse 3, have a look with me, chapter 1, verse 3 began this long exhortation, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. And at the end of the exhortation, down the other end of chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, we looked at this briefly, he concludes, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Paul says to Timothy, it really does matter. Remember Hymenaeus? Remember Alexander? And so in Ephesus, it seems, we have a church that was under some threat. The threat is ideas that aren't in accordance with the gospel. And young Timothy has been charged to do something about it. Therefore, what do you think is the first priority once he's silenced those persons and stop them teaching differently. 
Therefore, what should these believers in Ephesus do if they've not been sucked in by these false ideas, if they're turning their back on unhealthy ideas and teachings? Well, here's the surprise. Are you ready? The positive side of silencing the false teachers is what? Just notice how it works. Chapter 1, verse 3. I urged you to charge certain persons not to teach differently. That's what Timothy is told to stop. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore I urge, same word, first of all. 1, verse 3, 2, verse 1, are the two sides of the same coin. It's as though the alternative to being sucked in by false ideas is what? Praying for all people. And so this could well be today a sermon about praying for all people. That's what chapter 2 verse 1 says, doesn't it? But it's not. It's about therefore, pray for all people. The word therefore does at least two things for us. Grammar is good for you, right? I've told you that all the time. Grammar is good for you. The word therefore does two things. It does more, but it does at least two things. Firstly, it tells us that praying for all people is very, 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 very important. This isn't just one instruction amidst a large number of things that Christians ought to do. You know, that it comes up fairly early in the How to Be a Christian manual about all the things you're to do as a Christian. You'll find it on page seven. Pray for all people. No. This is what Christians do when they're not taken in by false teaching. It's not too much to suggest that if first, if, if Timothy's work in chapter one is to fail, if the false teachings were to get some traction in Ephesus, then the first thing that would go would be praying for all people. Therefore, I urge, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The second thing the therefore does is it pushes us beyond legalism. It's not wrong, brothers and sisters, actually, to do something that the Bible, God's word, tells us to do. If that's the only reason, it's actually a really good reason. Trust God when he tells us to do something. It's worth doing, even if you don't fully understand why. Just as when God tells us not to do something, that's a good enough reason not to do it, even if we don't know fully why. But the Bible doesn't just say, pray for all people. It says, therefore, pray for all people. And the reason for our praying for all people is important. It's important we pray for all people for the reasons we're told to pray. But what is it? What's the connection between stopping false teaching, chapter 1, and praying for all people, chapter 2? Why is such a priority given to this activity? Now, none of us, I hope, would think this is unimportant, but why is a priority given to it? Why would this be the number one sign of a healthy church, a healthy Christian life? Well, together with me, let's listen to what the Apostle Paul says here in these seven verses. Don't take your eyes off, by the way, the therefore. Um, and if, if, you have, if you have a Bible of your own, just write therefore in it if you want as well. If you're into that, I'm cool with that. You know, you can do that. Even in the church Bibles, write therefore. Anyway, I hope we'll just see how, like, why this is so wonderfully important together. We're going to think about chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 in three parts. Uh, verses 1 to 2, we'll explore what Paul was urging the believers to do. Verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, he'll explain why he urges them to do this. And then right at the end, verse 7, we'll have a look at what's at stake if it's not done. So 
Come with me. What's Paul urging here? Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. I want you to be praying, brothers and sisters, Paul says, prayers of all kinds. I don't think we need to dwell too long on the the range of words that Paul uses here. I need to notice that it's a range. Calvin wrote this. I admit that I do not completely understand the difference between them. It's a range. The first word, have a look, that word supplications could have the idea of bringing specific requests or needs to God. The second word, prayers, is probably just a general request being brought to God. The third, um, intercessions, probably it's appeals that are expressed with a sense of urgency and boldness. Fourth word, thanksgiving, pretty self-explanatory of the three, of the four, moves us towards expressions of gratitudes and thankfulness to God. That is what really should be going on among us. Here is a sign of a healthy church, a healthy fellowship of Christian people, healthy Christian lives. First of all, all kinds of prayers should be being prayed. And if I might just say at this point, too many of the commentaries and even translations of the Bible that we have put a heading over the section, which is something like instructions for public worship. In my opinion, it misses the tone very badly indeed. It's far too restrictive. This is not an instruction just for those who are preparing worship services or liturgies. It's not an instruction only for people who are leading a a church meeting, right? Now, for some of the people, like they would do well to listen to this word, but it's not limited, it's not restricted just to them. This is a word for Christian people everywhere. This is something the followers of Jesus do as a matter of first importance. We pray. We make requests to God. We appeal to him. We thank him privately and together. Whether or not it's formally or publicly, that's beside the point. And the therefore at the beginning of the verse tells us that this is what we'll do if false teaching, different ideas have not caused us to swerve from the glorious gospel. But it's more than that. The prayers Paul urges to be made here are not just any prayers, but prayers for all people. And this is now the idea that runs through the whole of our passage. It's not just prayerfulness in general, right, that's on view here as a sign of a healthy church. Oh, she's a prayerful person or he's a prayerful kind of person. That might not surprise us. But here it is prayer for all people that's on view. We know, right, that God graciously invites us to bring all our concerns and all our needs to him in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, Philippians chapter 4. Or cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. Such prayers, right? With any concern that is on our heart, such prayers are certainly part of any healthy Christian life. But here Paul is more specific. He's talking about particular prayers, prayers for all people. A sign of a healthy church that has not been corrupted by false ideas is a church that prays for all people. This is what we'll do. We'll pray for all people. Now, this is elaborated. Did you notice in verse 2? Praying for all people includes for kings 
and all those who are in authority. Not, as we often tend to think, right, especially for kings and all those in authority, as though people who are more important are more important. No. We pray for all those in authority because we're praying for all people and all people's lives are affected by those who are in authority, yeah? Furthermore, the prayer here is not for the conversion of kings, emperors, presidents, prime ministers, and any other powerful person you can think of. That's not, they're not really any more important than the conversion of anyone, which is to say it's very important, not because they're powerful people. We pray for all people, And as we pray for all people, we pray for the powerful people in order, see again verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and reverence. Rulers affect the lives of all the people under their rule. Paul urges that we pray for them, that we might be able to lead freely and open Christian lives. Paul, remember when Paul visited the city of Ephesus for the first time years earlier? Can you recall what happened? What happened when Paul visited Ephesus for the first time? Anyone know? Anyone? Yeah, come on. Yes! Mark, you get the lucky door prize. Good work. A riot broke out. A riot broke out in Ephesus. You can read that tonight when you go to bed in Acts chapter 19. Now, while the Christian life is not meant to be all, you know, like, just beautiful, without conflict, without hardship. The the Christian life isn't meant to be easy, but it's still good and desirable, right, that we live at peace and not at war. To live in an orderly society, not in a society marked by anarchy. It was good for everyone back in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus when the authorities restored order, and it was good for the gospel. And it was good for the Christians. The implication is that it'll be good for all people when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can freely be lived out, proclaimed, and bear fruit. This is still part of praying for all people. The Christian prayer for all in authority is not a self-serving prayer. Lord, please allow comfortable middle-class Christianity to flourish. Or, Lord, please give Christians privileges. Oh, Lord, please, can Christians keep having the privileges that we have in society? That's not the spirit here. No, it's prayer for all those in authority that they may rule in a way that the gospel may be proclaimed, lived out, advanced, and that godliness may flourish for the benefit of everyone. Well, there is the first part of the passage. What did Paul urge? Paul urges prayer for all people but we still have the question don't we why why is this what Paul urges as an expression of a rejection of false teaching why is prayer for all people the first sign of a healthy church that hasn't been misled still keen to understand the therefore in verse one and the good news is Paul in verses three four five and six provides a fourfold powerful answer to the question why does Paul urge us to pray like this verses three to six I think it's an indication actually that Paul thinks we'll be a little bit puzzled about this, expecting us to think that's a strange thing for the therefore to be after chapter one. So he takes a little time to explain the reason he's called for this activity. Why? Why pray for all people? A, because God wants all people to be saved. B, there is one God over all people. C, there is one mediator between God and all people. And D, Jesus' death was a ransom for all people. 
That's why I'm urging prayers and thanksgiving to be made for all people. Check it out with me. Pray for all people. Firstly, verse 3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Do you believe that? When we pray for all people, God is pleased because he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. How good is it when we desire what God desires? What's the evidence that you believe that? Must it not be praying for all people? Why does God desire all people to be saved and know the truth? Verse 5, for there is one God. That's the truth. The glorious gospel of the blessed God is not just a message for one group in the human race. Certainly not a message just for one nation in the world because there is one God. It's not the case that there are different gods for different people, different nations, different ethnicities. There is one God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every person you see in Rundle Mall, every person you see at Adelaide Oval, every person you bump into at Harbour Town, if you go to Harbour Town, or on campus, every person you see, every person in the world, all kinds of conditions of person, every culture, every religion have this in common. They exist in the sight of and under the sovereignty of one God. What's the evidence that you believe that? Must it not be praying for all people? Furthermore, verse five again. And there is one mediator between God and men, between all people, a man, Christ Jesus. The presupposition here is that all is not well between the one God and the one pe- the, all people. Mediation is required and mediation has been provided by God, one mediator for all people. The mediator is a man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the one who Paul in this letter has already referred to as our hope, chapter 1, verse 1, our Lord, chapter 1, verse 2, and the one of whom Paul said in that banner statement last week, chapter 1, verse 15, He's the one who came into the world to save sinners. What we need to appreciate is that the sinners he came to save are not one group, not one particular race, not one particular class of people, but all people. Do you believe that? That Jesus is the mediator that God has provided for all people? What's the evidence that you believe that? What's the evidence that I believe that? Must it not be praying for all people? And the fourth element in what I think is a pretty weighty urging of us to pray for all people is that this mediator, the man Christ Jesus, is the one, verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all people. Keep these things together. There is one God who in Jesus Christ has provided one mediator between God and all people. A mediator whose death is a ransom for all people and this, and in this we see that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
And that is why I urge, Paul says, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, brothers and sisters, I am aware that Paul's words here raise and do not answer a number of questions. By saying here, does Paul mean that all people will be saved? Please notice he does not say that. Is, if, Jesus death were, well, that, if Jesus' death was a ransom for all, how could it be that some are not ransomed? He doesn't tell us that here. We can look elsewhere in Paul's writings and other parts of the Bible that not every person will be saved. That in the end, for reasons best known to God himself, God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and that won't be every person. We could look back in chapter one of this letter and see that the sinners who are in fact saved by Jesus Christ are those who by God's grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit have come to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. So we need to take care not to draw wrong conclusions about what Paul writes here, but neither should we allow what we know from elsewhere to silence what we see and hear here, yeah? And at the end of verse 6, Paul says in a rather unusual phrase that the death of Jesus is the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth is the death of Jesus Christ, the ransom for all people. The death of Jesus Christ shouts to us, it shouts to the whole world that God so loved the world. What's the evidence that you believe the testimony? Must it not be praying for all people? Well, there's the second part of our passage. Why was Paul urging prayer for all people? Are you beginning to see the weight of the therefore back at the top of verse one? What was the problem? What was the problem with the different teaching that was emerging in Ephesus? What was the problem? It wasn't about jealousy, right? It wasn't like, I don't like your ideas, you can only have my ideas around here. I don't think it was about uniformity, you know, sort of cult-like stuff. Read through chapter one again, not now. Do it in your own time. But I wonder if you'd agree with me that the big problem at Ephesus was once you depart from the gospel of Jesus Christ that had been entrusted to Paul, you lose sight of God's extraordinary grace and mercy. That's the note we heard at the very beginning of the letter. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It is this gospel of God's grace that calls forth true faith. Timothy was to silence the teachers to protect the effectiveness of the gospel of grace, producing as it does love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They're the experiences we have of God's grace. The false teachers in Ephesus desired to be teachers, not of God's grace and mercy, but of God's law. Paul's own experience was, I've received mercy. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, if you get that, if you reject any teaching that distracts you from the God's glorious grace to all people, his grace displayed and present among us in the person of Jesus Christ, if you refuse to allow any idea, any thought to undermine this grace of God so you do believe it, what will you do? 
Therefore I urge then, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's what you do. When you believe the gospel of God's grace towards sinners, towards all people, you pray for all people. And our passage this morning concludes with what's at stake here. Have a look at verse 7. What's at stake? For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the nations. In other words, all people in faith and in truth. For the sake of the testimony that God desires all people everywhere to be saved and to come to a knowledge of God's truth, Paul was appointed to that very task, to be an apostle and a preacher. The nations must learn that there is one God, that there is one mediator between God and all people and that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people and that God desires all people to to be saved. If that doesn't go forth, that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake if we wander away from God's grace, if your faith is shipwrecked. Don't do that. Don't wander away from the grace, mercy and peace of God. Brothers and sisters, instead, let's pray for all people. It really is important. Do you see it? Do you feel the weight of it? How important it is for us to work out how we can be praying for all people, ways we can be praying for all people, for the nations, that our prayers reflect however shadowy, however dimly, that our prayers reflect God's grace, our private prayers, our family prayers, our prayers in our DGs, our prayers with our friends on more structured occasions like this when Ellen led us in prayer at the boiler room, our prayer meeting first Tuesday of every month, that our prayers reflect prayers for all people. Inspired by this text, our last boiler room, we basically prayed for our church for about 35 seconds and spent the whole time praying for the 32 nations that represented their countries at the Women's World Cup. We just dished out all the countries and prayed for all people. Half the time we're going, don't even know where this country is, but let's pray for them anyway, you know. We prayed for all people. Why? Because believing the glorious gospel of God, believing the gospel turns our eyes and turns our hearts to the whole world. You see, my first answer actually to that question I asked you at the beginning, when I asked what's the sign of a healthy church, as I was thinking about chapter one, my first thought was love. Anyone else have love? No. Oh yeah, there we go, we're friends, good work, yeah. We had love. Now that's not wrong, is it? It's just not enough. You see, love means I think we're looking at each other and absolutely the gospel will transform our relationships with one another and it is a genuine sign of a healthy church. But if you believe the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's been displayed in him, that Jesus is a ransom for all people, we don't just love one another, we pray for all people. So with that in mind, let's pray. Let's pray. Would you join me and we'll pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, 
We praise you and we thank you this morning for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of Jesus, the son you love. In him and only through him do we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This morning, Father, hear our prayer for all who are far away from you, enemies in their minds because of their evil behaviour, that they might come to believe the hope held out in the gospel. Father, open doors for the gospel in every land, in every nation, among all peoples. And Father, enable the messengers of your truth to proclaim it clearly as they should. And Father, help us all here in this room this morning who know and love Jesus. Help us to be wise in the way we act towards those who don't yet trust Christ. And Father, help us to make the most of every opportunity you give us. And Father, just in the quietness of each of our hearts right now, let's just encourage you to bring to the Lord a country of the world, a people group of the world, a people you know and love. Bring them before the Lord. Father, we bring these countries, these people, these groups to you, Lord, and ask that you would be kind and gracious and merciful to bring many among them to a saving knowledge and faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that our conversations will always be full of grace and Father seasons with salt that we may know how to answer everyone and we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to you through him Amen Amen Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church North Adelaide we hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.